Gracious God, our King, what a joy it is to come and see you in your tenderness, in your humility, in your vulnerability, and knowing that you who had all power, who existed in all glory, who was surrounded by all praise and continuous worship, who had perfect and beautiful communion with your Father and with the Holy Spirit, yet you came and you suffered and made yourself vulnerable for us. This morning, speak to us through the word that you have written. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, through the word which you have inspired. Do your work in us as we humbly just come uh, and feed on what you have for us here. Be glorified, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I mostly just kind of want to read with you about the Christ child. This is the one who is the child of our glory. The child of our glory is what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Let me set the scene for where we're going to pick up in the middle of Matthew 2. We're going to take the second half of this chapter, starting in verse 3 and going to the end in verse 23. The Magi have already come by this time to visit baby Jesus. They uh, came before Herod and then were tasked by Herod to let him know where they found this one who was to be king of the Jews. Well, they've come and they've made their visit to Herod and then to Christ, and then they left by another route because they were forewarned that to share such information with Herod would have been a bad thing to do. Our time frame then, being on the other side of the come, coming of the Magi, is probably some weeks or months after the birth of Christ, that the Magi have now successfully traveled there and left. Herod, the ruler of that region, is concerned when he hears of this birth. It says that he's troubled about this one who's called the King of the Jews when he hears he's been born. Joseph and Mary, having gone through their journeys leading up to the labor and delivery and birth of Jesus, we would now find them at some short period of time later than somewhat settled at this point. But by the fearful malice of Herod, they're about to become unsettled again. Pick up with me in chapter 2 and we'll start reading. Verse 13, now when the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. First, this morning, I'd like to observe with you where the focus of this whole passage is. The focus is on Christ. We have, we have uh, the appearance of angels in this passage, almost to the point, by the, by the time you get to the end of, of Matthew chapter 2, because there's been a previous uh, dream and, and appearance and word from God, you're beginning to feel like this stuff just kind of happens every night you go to bed, like you have another dream and another angel shows up to somebody, tells somebody to do something else. Three miraculous dreams, the appearance of angels. We have one faith-filled father in Joseph who does as he is led to protect the baby and his mother. We have one maniacal tyrant who looms large in this passage. And yet, the baby is the focus. Though he is still very young, And though he takes no action of his own in this passage, yet he is still at the heart of the act in this play. In fact, in every play, the child is the heart of the act. No matter what you're going through today, the child is the heart of the act in your play and in mine. Notice here how it is emphasized by the author, Matthew, as he writes, what a peculiar way to note to Joseph his job. Look at there in the middle of 13. The angel commands, get up, take who? The child and his mother. You would think it would be, why don't you take Mary and the child? No, no. Mary is just the child's mother. Take the child and his mother. Four times in this passage, it will be said exactly that way, with the child coming first, because the child is the primary point of of focus. Make no mistake, we as Protestants are prone to, um, as an overreaction to Catholic teaching, think too little of Mary. She was an honorable young woman. She is to be esteemed and emulated. She is a woman of profound faith, having given her very body to the service of the Lord. But understand, no human being, male or female, can hold a candle to the centrality of the Lord Jesus. And so here he is, though he is passive, probably literally carried from place to place, passive in that sense, in our entire passage today, yet he is the primary actor in the midst of all of it. Even as all of history plays out, it is all his story. You have heard said before, and the child is the heart of the act. For those of us who worship him, we know he is the heart of our days and our nights, the heart of our decisions, our yearnings, our our struggles, our mourning, our prayers, everything we live for. Notice the focus then on Christ, the heart of the act. Now, let's take in the scope of what God is doing here in giving us this record, the second half of Matthew 2. Though he was vulnerable, hunted, and despised, 
he was carried unshakably in the purpose of his father. I see that as the scope of this entire section, so I'll say it again. Though he was vulnerable, hunted, and despised, he was carried unshakably in the purpose of his father. Though he was vulnerable, hunted, and despised, he was carried unshakably in the purpose of his father. Notice he's vulnerable there in verse 13. Now when they had gone, the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee. This is the eternal Son of God. This is the one who's at the right hand of the Father. This is the one who's been in perfect communion with the creator of the universe. This is the one through whom and by whom and in whom all things were created, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, and for whom. And yet, in his humanity, he is vulnerable. Cut him, and he will bleed. Drop him, and part of him will likely break. He could be hurt. He was, in fact, flesh and blood, really. He could have been speared, and he could have been killed. He really was just a baby. That's the wonder of what we celebrate. Not only vulnerable, but hunted. Verse 13 ends, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Search and destroy is the mission of Herod. He's not the first to be on such a search and destroy mission, and he certainly was not the last. This was a concerted effort on Herod's part. From the moment he learned of the birth of this baby, whom they called the king of the Jews, from the moment he heard about it, he was scheming. Oh, yeah, you guys are going to go visit him, huh? Well, once you find him, just come back and tell me where he's at, because I think I'd like to worship him as well, Herod said. In verse 16, we see what comes of the next step. When the Magi don't return, then when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. Historians will say that likely this is not the slaughter of millions or the slaughter of thousands. We're talking about Bethlehem small village just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, and even if we include its vicinity, likely the death of the baby boys is maybe in the dozens, many historians will say, but that does not take away from the terror of its tragedy, the slaughter of the innocents. Because once an evil plan is hatched in the heart of an evil man, he will often Go to any lakes, any lengths to carry it to conclusion. So having his first scheme thwarted, he comes to a more dastardly plan. Fine, then kill every little Hebrew boy you can find. And just to be safe, probably calculating a grievous margin of error, says, why don't we just take every, of them, every one of them two years old and below? So he's hunted, and as a result, there are many casualties. And yet, he is guarded, isn't he? Guarded by his 
earthly adoptive father who will go to any lengths, travel any distances, do whatever is needed to watch over Jesus and Mary, guarded by his heavenly, eternal father, who every step of the way is not merely reacting to what Herod is doing, but rather is planning in advance how to thwart Herod's next move by the sending of revelation through an angel. The child is vulnerable in his flesh, but he is invincible in God's purpose. And is that not encouraging for us? Who are weak and fleshy and vulnerable? And yet in God's purpose, invincible for what he would do in and through us who know Christ. Though he was vulnerable, hunted, and despised, he was carried unshakably in the purpose of his father. Well, this then is the backdrop wherein we see the glories of Christ stand out in sharp relief. So then let's notice four glories of this child. Four glories of this child which bring his glory to us. First, he is the new and greater deliverance. This child, he is the new and greater deliverance. Let me uh, just read some of the details of this passage in a, in a broad strokes way. I want to see if you can connect the dots and tell me if you've ever heard the, the coming together of these ideas in any other place anywhere else before. What we have is the slaughter of Hebrew babies by an evil ruler. Have we ever heard of that before? How about the threat on the life of a chosen child, a child who himself is a deliverer? We've ever heard of that anywhere before. I don't know, just in case we haven't quite got it yet. How about the mention of Egypt? Or does that narrow it down a little bit? Or to be more specific, verse 15 says, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I've called my son. The exodus that happened under Moses in Hosea 11, verse 1, that's what's quoted here in Matthew 2. It's referred back to by Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. God calls the entire nation his son. We saw that, in fact, in Exodus chapter 4, where the Lord gives a dire warning to the Pharaoh, and he says, you're going to treat my son this way. You're not going to want to do that because I will take your firstborn son from you. And so he calls his son a tender naming in Hosea and reminder throughout Scripture to call the nation figuratively my son. But now it's not a figure anymore. Um, By the way, what we have in this portion of of Matthew chapter 2 are three of probably the more subtle, more obtuse prophecies about the Christ child that we would find anywhere in Scripture. And all three of them kind of come bunched together. I'm not putting all three at the top, but they're certainly up in the group of the most obtuse, most subtle, more obscure. Of the three, this is the clearest. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Would you have read that in Hosea, knowing it was referring back to the nation of Israel, and would you have thought immediately as an ancient Hebrew, I bet when the Messiah comes, when he's little, 
he'll be in Egypt, and then he'll come back out. That's what you would have thought, right? This is one of the clearer ones. Hosea led by a sanctified imagination and through the perfect inspiration of the Spirit sees a connection because just as Israel is the Son of God, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I ain't using scare quotes on that, right? And so he sees the connection Matthew does here. A fulfillment, he calls it. I think what we really have is a type, and then Jesus is the anti-type. won't go into the details of that, but there is a very legitimate style of fulfillment where you don't have to say, and then when the Messiah comes, he'll do this, in order for there to be a true prophecy and a true fulfillment. Rather, the entire nation was a type of the Messiah to come, or to say it another way, Jesus is the greater Israel. He is the perfect representative of the people of God. He is the Son. And in the, in the flow of this entire narrative, what we really have is a deliverance here and a reminder of Moses and a coming out of Egypt, and we have a new deliverer as well. Uh, just, just as Jesus in Hebrews uh, can be at one and the same time, he can be the altar, and he can be the temple, and he can be the sacrificed, and he can be the high priest. He can be all those, which is weird because he's doing all that to himself. So in the same way, he can be the one delivered and the deliverer who brings the deliverance. Jesus is all of those. The new and greater deliverance is here. Every good Jew reading Matthew 2 would know that. How sweet it is that for us, it's not subtle. Standing on this side of Christ, it's not something to wonder or guess at. It is something to bank on when we know, Lord, I do not do as I wish I would do. Who can deliver me from the body of this death, Paul says in Romans 7. But thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the new and greater deliverance in our lives. That is the glory of this child, and he brings his glory to us. He is the new and greater deliverance. Second, he is, the final, he is final comfort to those who turn to him in grief. Second, he is final comfort to those who turn to him in grief. For some, the Christmas holidays can be the hardest time of the year. Many of us know grief and even debilitating grief, and for some, because of particular associations with the holidays or just because in the holiday season it's felt more acutely, the grief is always with us. Friends, the grief is real. The beautiful thing about Scripture is God never has to pretend or get us to pretend that the grief is not real. Here we find grief in our passage, and it is very real. 16, when Herod saw he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And here's the grief. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. 
a number of connections going on in that passage. I'll just laundry list a few for me for you. My understanding, if I remember it rightly, uh, is Rachel is buried near Rama. Rachel weeping for her children. This Rama also is likely a point of departure when the exiles were taken first to Assyria and then by Babylon. And in context in Jeremiah 31, that is the weeping that is mentioned by Jeremiah. Mothers weeping because their sons and maybe even their daughters have been killed by the marching army who had no mercy. And those eventually who yet still lived after the battle were now taken hostage and carried away. And so there are mothers Rachel is the picture of Jeremiah 31 in grief, in weeping. The grief is real because Herod's murderous rage was real. In every effort, there has been a malicious effort to silence the people of the child and to end his lineage. Where does this come from? Is it, is it just that Herod is the most devious the most dark-hearted of any man who has ever lived? No. Sadly, it's been around since ages immortal, right? We know where it comes from. Ever since the promise in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the fall, for the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent, ever since then, the serpent has raged against the child and his people. That snake, that dragon of old has sought to slaughter. And here, Herod does the bidding of the evil one, but a pawn in his hands to slaughter the innocents. From Genesis 3 all the way through Scripture to Revelation chapter 12, where John is given the vision of a dragon crouching before a pregnant woman in labor about to give birth so that he might devour so the evil one has always sought to slaughter. Sadly, Israelite mothers learned long ago that their babies are not always safe from the reaches of evil. The tragedy that we have seen in the last two months is that that is still true today, isn't it? Jeremiah 31 is quoted here by Matthew 2. What we need to know, what I believe every good Jew knew who would hear these words, is they'd know at least something about the broader context. They would know that this mention of deep and profound grief is the anomaly in Jeremiah 31. Because all the verses leading up to that are the promise from God to his people as they are headed off into exile that he will bring them back, that they will return. The subsequent verses coming after this one where it's found in Jeremiah 31 are the picture of the people returning and their, their mourning turned to joy in that day. And then Jeremiah 31, the chapter climaxes with what? Answer, the new covenant, the promise of all of the ages that, oh golly, what a coincidence, just happens to be bound up in this child. The end of Jeremiah 31 
is that promise that I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The grief was real for those mothers who lived through those generations of Assyria and Babylon. The grief was real for these mothers in the precincts around Bethlehem who lost their baby boys. And yet there was a hope that went beyond that we could only wish and hope and pray that they came to know and that they were reunited with those boys because they came to believe in the one in whose name they were killed. Understand that uh, these might be the very, very first martyrs in the Christian church, right? Depending upon how you define your terms, Jesus just comes and immediately these die in his name. Not by their choice, not even by their faith, just by their association They are martyred for Christ. May it be that those moms and dads and families grieving and cursing over what Herod has done has come to see that the Lord has brought the salvation he has ever promised. You see, Jeremiah 31, the context of the verse that's quoted here, I think is meant to be the the bigger context of all of this very real and very deep grief, the Lord will bring his people home. The Lord will return them to himself. The Lord will ultimately forgive and he will be their God and they will be his people. And all of the blessings of the new, com- uh, new covenant, that is final comfort. Now you might say that is, that is pale comfort to the slaughter of a an innocent baby, I would say, if that is not enough comfort, then what is? That is the glory of the Christ. It does not take away the tragedy, but it is the only answer big enough for it. And so for us today, pilgrims with our own griefs, there are times we say a voice is heard weeping and great mourning. It's not Rachel's, it's mine, Lord, for what I felt, for what has happened, for what is going on in this world as we lament. And the Lord says, I know the grief is real. The murderous rage is real. But catch what the necessary implication of that is. So the future promise can be no less real. And that's the glories of this baby. Final comfort to those who turn to him in grief. Third, he is our affection. Third, he is our affection. We get a a third fulfilled here at the end of our passage. I'll I'll read it for you. Um, Herod dies. I'll just summarize it first. Herod dies. An angel comes to Joseph again and says, go home. Joseph brings the child and his mother most of the way back home and then learns, ooh, it's not Herod who's in charge because he's dead. Now it's Archelaus. Um, It's Herod the Great who 
prosecuted the murder of the innocents. By the way, that pales in comparison to some of the other things that Herod the Great did. Sadly, his three boys who divided his area of rule into three different regions were no better than Herod the Great. Herod Archelaus now takes over the region of Judea and Idumea and Samaria and some other places like that that I can't pronounce. But he's no better. And so Joseph is concerned. And so we think, wait, is Joseph in fear? Is he not acting in faith? Well, we don't need to question that long because he goes to bed that night and bing, there's another dream. And he's told again, nope, don't go back that way. And so instead he goes to Nazareth. By the way, why Nazareth? I'm slow, okay? It's taken me a lot of years to figure this out. I, I, no kidding, I figured this out this week for the very first time in my life. Do you know why Joseph and Mary go back to Nazareth? Answer, because it's their hometown. You're like, wait, I thought Bethlehem was their hometown. No, Bethlehem is Joseph's family's hometown where he goes back to register for the census. But remember, when an angel appears to Mary and says, you will be with child, go back and check it out, where does he come? To Nazareth. That's where they are. That's where they are growing up in their at least teenage years, or however old Joseph is, he's probably older, and through their engagement. So rather than heading back to where Christ was born in Bethlehem, they go back to Nazareth. Ah, Nazareth. Nazareth in Galilee. Well, this fulfills a prophecy or something like that, as Matthew tells us. Pick up in 22. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Here's the problem. There is no place in Scripture that it says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. And so you can imagine there's a lot of ink spilled over this. I think what we have here is of the three of the sort of subtle prophecies or types, this is the most subtle, possibly. I want you to notice even the way Matthew speaks of it. Um, look at 17 again. Notice how specific he is. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, right? Look at verse 15. What had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. He doesn't name him, but it's Hosea. Now jump down to 23. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Notice how Matthew backs off just a little bit. He just says this was generally spoken through the prophets. He doesn't quote a specific. Also, the other thing, without getting into boring Greek grammar details that you can know, is the word spoken in verse 23 is a little different than the words spoken as it goes with the other two prophecies. I think Matthew's giving a hint here. Hey, guys, this was communicated. This is divine. This is clear, but it's not a direct quote. So again, what we have is the type and the anti-type. Good, that gets us halfway home. Let's figure out the second half. What in the world is it referring to then? Two options, I think. There are about 11, but there are only two that I think are probably any good. Uh, the first, and it's a decent option, this could be a quote after I've just given you an argument that I don't think it's a quote, so this won't be my number one choice, is from Isaiah 11, where it says that a branch will come from the root of Jesse. After the nation is cut off 
at the knees and taken away in exile, a stump is left. And out of that, a new shoot shall come out of the lineage of Jesse, and it will be called a branch. The Hebrew word for branch is netzer. You can, if you work fairly hard, get from netzer to Nazarene. Uh, but there's a little bit of work. That's one of the reasons I'm not sure. The other reason I'm not sure is I think Matthew would have just said, hey, this is what Isaiah said. But it's a, it's a legit possibility. No doubt the Messiah was the branch. Nobody's debating that. Isaiah 11 is absolutely all about Jesus. The question is, is that what Matthew's referring to? I'm inclined to think it's a second option. I'm inclined to think that what Matthew is doing is something that, again, all the people of his day would know well. And that is when you say, oh, this is just like God said that his son would be a Nazarene. Everybody knew what that meant. Oh, he's going to be a Nazarene, huh? From Galilee? What was it to be from Galilee and a Nazarene? Go to John with me, John chapter 1. Uh, this will establish it if we just read three verses quickly, three different passages, and you'll see how everybody in that day would have understood these words. John chapter 1, starting in verse 45. I'm not going to give you context for any of these because you won't need them. The point will be obvious. John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. John 7, John chapter 7. Uh, let's start in verse 40. John 7, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And then drop down a few more verses to verse 50. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and, he knows what, and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. You guys got a pretty good idea what people think of Nazareth and Galilee in the first century? It's like saying someone's from Cleveland. Okay, apologies to people from Cleveland. But you get my point, right? I think what's going on is Matthew is using a common understanding of his day. He calls, he uses the actual term Nazarene, but the term Nazarene is code for, oh, he's one of those. We just don't live in that culture, so we don't quite get it. Now, let me give you the follow-up question. Is there anywhere in the prophets that there is the scandalous unthinkable prophecy that the Messiah, who's going to be the king and ruler and savior of all, is actually going to be one of those. And you go, yeah, it's in several places in the prophets, isn't it? Flip to Isaiah 53 with me, and we'll just read one verse there, because this is probably the most obvious and the most succinct. Isaiah 53, and we'll just read verse 3 for this morning. This is spoken of the suffering servant sent by God for the nation and ultimately for the world. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised second time, and we did not esteem him. You know what the other glory of Christ is in this passage? His fulfillment is that though he was disdained, he is the most beautiful, the most honorable, the most blessed, the most glorious of all. He is our affection. I think, I think Matthew would write these words after the fact, tongue in cheek, and realize they called him a Nazarene. Can you believe that? The most unfitting term ever. And yet that's exactly what they said he would be. Christ secures our glory through great disdain. In fact, I would dare say that that the disdain of Jesus of Nazareth was necessary in order for him to be forsaken as he was. Peter will write, after having his eyes opened to the beauty and the glory and the nobility and the holiness of Jesus, he will write to the believers in 1 Peter and say, though you have not seen him, what? Anybody know the rest of that verse? You love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Friends, you have not seen him, nor have I, but you love him. He is your affection. Jesus won through weakness. He saved through sacrifice. And in the process, he did not conquer nations or bodies or armies. He conquered hearts so that now our hearts love him like we love no one and nothing else. Yes, he stood. He stood against evil, but ultimately he suffered the wrath of God, and he did that in our place, and we love him for it. He has now won our affections, and so we sing, come, let us adore him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus now is not just some name, just some idea, some letters black and white left to right across a page. Jesus now is the one of your affections. If you know Christ, then you love him more than anyone or anything else. He is your life. And this is his glory. Fascinating as it is that he would fulfill to be so disdained. Fourth, and finally, he is our only triumph. He is our only triumph. Notice that this entire narrative, in some sense, is driven by what protagonist? Answer, Herod. But really, behind the scenes, it is God himself who's pulling the strings. And yet Herod looms large in this scene. You have to appreciate the irony that the protagonist, by his multiple efforts, tries on multiple occasions, excuse me, to secure the death of the child, and yet twice in the passage we're told he dies. (laughs) 
So that didn't work out so well for him. Every step of Herod in this passage, every move of the enemy is met. No, no, it's preempted by the work of the Lord. And in the end, the enemy only serves to fulfill the prophecies that God has said would be, right? All that the prophets had foretold long ago, even in their misery and their terror and their grief, even in their humility and their disdain, and yet all ultimately in glory and victory and triumph. Herod here is the handmaid of the purpose of Satan. Satan's murderous rage has many casualties in our world today, doesn't it? But it cannot thwart God's work. And it only serves to magnify his glory and hold out in stark contrast his salvation. Have you ever thought sometimes that it's easy for us to get numb to how great our rescue really is? until we feel real pain, until we see real suffering, until we share in or bear real grief, and then we realize, you know what? This world is a hell, but for the grace of God. This is as close as I will get to hell for the rest of eternity, and he will come and rescue me so that I come out of it. There are three types of the Christ in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in this single segment and the protagonist that helps bring about all three of them, Rachel, Egypt, Nazareth, all because of Herod. What a fool, right? All to the glory of God. Thank you, Lord, in the end. Who can overthrow the assaults of the enemy of our soul? Who can turn his ghastly terrors into advances of his mighty grace? That's what the child has done. Let me say that again. Who can turn the ghastly terrors of his attacks into advances of his mighty grace? The child of our glory. Our deliverance, our final comfort, our affection, and our triumph. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Gracious God, we rejoice that you have given us eyes to see that you are a great king. Herod took the title, great, but he played the fool. Let us follow in the steps of Jesus, the humble one, disdained the one who died for us, the one who overcame evil with good, the one who triumphed by his blood. Let us triumph by the word of our testimony, Lord. And may it be that we speak often of our affection for you and how precious you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to be the child of our glory. We'll give you the praise for it. We thank you in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen.